The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, so we're continuing our Advent series kicked off by Tim last week. If you didn't have a chance to go listen to his message, he's told some great stories, some powerful stories um, to kick off our first week of Advent here. So go back and listen if you've not already heard that message. Now, every year during Christmas messages, I think there's a temptation for you and for us as the preachers, and the temptation is this, to go on autopilot, and to think, yeah, I've heard these sermons before, they're talking about love and joy and peace and all the different things we discuss at Advent time, but I want to ask us all, let's please not do that as we walk through the season together. We have the same hope for this series as all our other series. We're wanting to see growth and repentance and life change, and so we hope that this series kind of shakes some things up for us as we walk through these uh, topics together. Now, many of us, I think, don't have that kind of expectation at Christmas time. Whenever we think of the holidays, we have this ideal and sentimental view of Christmas. You know, Gary, Danny mentioned um, two weeks ago the, uh, the Norman Rockwell uh, picture, right, at Thanksgiving. And we all kind of have that ideal, sentimental view of holidays. And we don't just do this with holidays, we do this with, with most things. And so it makes me think of this image right here, and I promised myself I would not mention LSU today, but I wanted to give him another kind of shout out. And, uh, but we do this with things like even farms. Whenever you see farms depicted in logos or advertising, we always have this ideal sentimental view of things like farms. Now listen, I spent a lot of time on a farm, I never saw that image at a farm ever. <laughs> if you've been on a farm, you know farms are mostly disgusting right? And this is not what they're like at all. And uh, so we have this ideal sentimental view of things, and I think it it applies to Christmas as well. And, but that's not what Christmas is. Christmas is not just some ideal sentimental thing, and that's never been Christmas. And so um, surrounding the birth of Christ, just think about the first Christmas. There is violence, there's injustice, there's abuse of power, there's homelessness, there's refugees on the run. There, is, there are families being ripped apart. I mean, Joseph is trying to quietly divorce his wife. There's a lot of chaos at the first Christmas. Christmas is anything but sentimental. It's really a lot of chaos. And so today we're talking about peace. And what comes to mind when you think about the word peace? What comes to my mind is this clip from an old movie. Watch this. World peace. Definitely world peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. (laughs) And world peace. So, of course, that's going to get the applause, right? I mean, it's, I mean, how can anyone be against world peace, right? So, I mean, everyone's for world peace. It, it'd be the safest answer to give at a beauty pageant, right? So, if you're a child of the 60s or 70s, you might think of these images when you think about peace. 
And so you've got the peace hand sign and you've got the other sign over there. And so you think of those signs when you think about peace. And this was, of course, at a time when the world was full of chaos and conflict, you know, unlike today. And, uh, and people were crying out for peace in this time. And if you, if you and I see the word peace on a Christmas card or hear it in a song, we're just going to gloss over it. We're going to, it's just filler. And if we see it in the Bible, we pass over that concept because it's often just part of a greeting or a closing when Paul says, grace and peace to you. We don't focus much on that concept. So many of us, I think, see peace only as the absence of something. We just see it as an absence of conflict, an absence of violence, an absence of war, an absence of conflict. And peace, if I have one goal today, it's to let you see that peace is so much more than just an absence. And so today I want to talk about what real peace is and how we get real peace. So if you're a definition kind of person, what is peace? Peace is total well-being, security associated with God's presence among his people. And we see this concept of peace all throughout the Old Testament. And what is the, the word for peace in the Old Testament? Just go ahead and say it. You know what it is. Shalom. And so this could apply to the state of an individual, a person to person. This could be nation to nation, but this also applies to God and mankind. We've been traveling through the life of Abraham the last few weeks, talking a lot about covenant. And in the Old Testament, peace would mean harmony and communion between two partners. Peace was part of God's blessing in the relationship between God and Israel. But when Israel disobeyed God, there would be no peace. So we see the prophets writing things like in Jeremiah 16, 5, for thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord. So what is God saying to Jeremiah? He is telling the people through Jeremiah that you've rebelled and I'm gonna warn against, I'm gonna warn you that I'm gonna judge you for your rebellion. And he tells Jeremiah, he says, don't even attend a funeral or mourn the dead because I want you to be a protesting their idolatry. This was to be a testimony that God had removed his peace from the nation of Israel. So Jeremiah was to counter what the false prophets were saying and so in Jeremiah 6.14, this is in relation to the false prophets of Israel. It says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The false prophets would put a band-aid over idolatry. And so Israel's, Israel's false prophets would give the nation false assurance. Hey, everything's going to be okay. We're God's people. We're the chosen people. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. Now, the prophets had a really hard job because they had to warn about imminent death and destruction while at the same time pointing the nation to hope, a future of hope and peace. And so we see things like Ezekiel, chapter 34, 25, that in spite of their disobedience, God says, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I don't know about you, but sleeping in the woods does not sound very peaceful. So what is he talking about? What is he referring to when he says that? Well, see, God would make this, God made this covenant of peace with the nation of Israel between him and his people. 
And this is not the same thing as the new covenant. This is different. This is more broad than that. But Ezekiel points to a future where God has removed his people's enemies and they can finally be at peace. So why would you and I be scared to sleep in the woods? Well, there's things lurking that we may not know about, right? Um, Where I'm from in Virginia, there's been this weird kind of bear migration. Where I grew up, we never saw bears. We never heard about bears. But where my parents live right now, there have been bear sightings, bears getting hit by cars. It's, it's gotten kind of crazy. And I don't know why that is, but there's been this invasion of bears. They've seen bear footprints like on their property. So when I go visit them, am I going to sleep in the woods? Probably not. Probably not. So the, 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 the image here is pretty vivid. It's, it's you can have peace because I'm going to remove your enemies from your land so that you can have peace in the land. And so this is the point that Ezekiel's trying to make. There's also this idea through the Bible in the Old Testament that there's this end time expectation of peace that's always been associated with the coming Messiah. And so we come to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. One of the most famous passages in relation to the coming Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So ultimately, this reign of peace isn't just for Israel, but the offer is made for the whole world. And the Old Testament ends with this hope of peace that's still unrealized in the full sense. Then, of course, there's the 400 years of silence until we get to John the Baptist. And as we move into the New Testament, there's one idea that I want you to understand today. Peace isn't just an absence. Peace is a presence. It's not just an absence of war and conflict, but true peace is a presence and only comes through the presence of God as he takes on human flesh. You see, peace has always been linked with the presence of God coming into humanity, coming to earth. And so I want to ask this question this morning. How is it that we come into this peace? How do we get peace? You see, there are many ways that mankind tries to get peace, Some look to government. Others look to the markets. Everyone seems to be looking to technology these days to bring about peace. You may recognize this person. This is Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. And he is worth $125 billion right now. Did you guys realize that? That's a a lot of money. And we're making him more wealthy this holiday season, of course, right? But he, he, he believes that because mankind is destroying the earth, in his mind, you may not know this, I just read about this last week, he started a company that he calls his most passionate project, and it's called Blue Origin, and it's a space exploration company. And the only reason why he feels this call to do all the companies that he has Amazon doing and all their services, is so he can get money to fund his space exploration project. But do you know what the ultimate goal in his mind, not in his lifetime, but ultimately, 
would be to colonize space. He has this idea that we have to leave Earth because Earth is being destroyed, so we're gonna colonize space and set up these capsules out in space where people can, can flourish. This is his idea of, of, of what's fueling much of his uh, prosperity. And I know you thought, I just thought he liked dropping things off at my front door. No, there's a lot more behind it. So he, he wants to bring peace on earth by leaving the earth. I guess that's one way to do it, right? But mankind has always sought peace on earth in our own human-centered way. We've also sought to bring peace to ourselves by trying to fix ourselves. We think we have this light within ourselves and we can create unity and peace by our own efforts. But our efforts always fall short. So how do we get peace? Well, peace comes to us in some surprising ways. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter two. In Luke chapter two, this is eight days after the birth of Jesus. And Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to be circumcised. And while they're there, there's this man named Simeon who sees them walk by. And the Holy Spirit reveals to him that this is the Christ. And so he, he knows this is the Messiah. So he picks up Jesus and he's speaking powerful words over Jesus And now there's a statement in this little section in Luke chapter two, verse 33, 35, that I've never noticed before. In all my years of ministry, I've never seen this this phrase. It says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So you can probably guess what statement I'm talking about. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now I've, I probably wouldn't say that to a woman who's just had a baby. But what does he mean? We don't sing songs with that line in it. We don't put that on a Christmas card. But here's what, this is really a stark image. This guy, Simeon, a stranger to Joseph and Mary, recognizes that this is the coming Messiah. The Holy Spirit reveals that to him. He goes over to them, picks up the baby, says some powerful words over baby Jesus, and then he turns to Mary and Joseph and says this statement. He's saying, essentially, your son's going to cause a lot of conflict in Israel. And he's also going to cause a lot of conflict in you as well. And it's going to feel like a dagger going through your heart. Congratulations, Mary. That's what he's saying to Mary. He's saying there's going to be opposition for your son and for those who follow him. 
But what did this mean for Mary and Joseph? What did the statement, a sword's going to pierce your own soul also, what did that mean to Mary and Joseph? Well, it could mean a couple of different things. There was a lot of confusion, if you look at the Gospels, a lot of confusion in their family about the nature of their son, Jesus. And the family, it took them some time. So even Jesus' family, it took them some time to recognize who he was and what he came to do. There was confusion. So even there's a section in the Gospels where even it says that his, uh, his family went to go, the word is not in English arrest, but that's the implication. His family went to go arrest him for saying the things that he was saying and bring him back home and tell him, stop talking crazy talk. His family was going to do that during his ministry. His own mother was going to be confused about really what the nature of his mission was. This statement might also be pointing to the cross. I think we forget that Mary had to watch her own son die on the cross. She had to watch her own son die. I know some in this room, you have experienced that kind of pain. And for Mary, it wasn't just that the cross felt like this defeat because maybe he wasn't the Messiah we thought he was going to be, but it also was double or triple because this was her son that she is watching die on this cross. And for Mary, as a spear went into his side, a sword went through her soul. And this is... We, we focus on the sentimental side of the Christmas story, but this is the Christmas story. This is, we, we say he brings peace to earth, but we forget how he brings about that peace. So Jesus causes conflict among people. Even his own family couldn't agree on who he was or what he came to do. When Simeon says these words, he's saying that people are going to turn against him. They're going to turn against each other. When Jesus came out of the womb, the government turned against him as Herod put to death any child under the age of two. Now, why was he so reviled? Well, this is what happens whenever light illuminates darkness. People don't like being exposed. I know that some of us experience that in your workplace. You might be living a certain way, trying to do what's right, keeping your head down, doing your work, not being self-righteous, but there's still a backlash against the way that you're living. Sometimes living that way doesn't make you many friends. Tim Keller writes in his book, Hidden Christmas, the manger at Christmas means that if you live like Jesus, there won't be a lot of, there won't be room for you in a lot of ends. Jesus was rejected even before he came out of the womb. And of course, there would be much conflict as a result of his ministry. And I know that some of you know this statement firsthand. And it's not just true of the workplace, it's true of family. I mean, holidays always have a funny way of bringing that out, right? And for any Christ follower, this reality is gonna exist. Christians can feel like the psalmist in Psalm 127 I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You see, a Christian is always to be for peace, 
But sometimes when you open up your mouth and you say what you really believe about God and Jesus and who he is and who we are in light of him, that it's gonna, it's gonna incite some, people are gonna wanna fight over that. And so we don't seek out conflict unnecessarily, but it's usually gonna find those that proclaim Christ. So Jesus causes conflict among people, but he also causes conflict within people. Now, people doubt, they question who he is, and not only that, once you recognize who he is, the conflict isn't over. We all have this internal conflict just to come to Jesus and surrender to him, but even after we've surrendered, there's still this internal struggle, this conflict. Romans 7 talks about that. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. We have to fight against sin. That's a pretty big conflict internally for us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us in that battle. But here's the really good news. Even though there is this conflict even after we come to Christ, that doesn't mean there still can't be peace. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, the child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as his inward peace. Now, it might be kind of confusing how we can, how both can exist at the same time, but whenever you and I surrender to Christ, we start to struggle a little bit differently. We don't struggle as people that are without hope. We've got to recognize some hard things about ourselves whenever we come to Christ, right? I mean, that's the struggle. We've got to go through conflict to get to peace. Think about if someone has a, a tumor, how does a surgeon bring peace to their body? He's going to cut them open and do surgery. They're going to make you bleed. They're going to hurt you to heal you. How does a therapist help someone? If you're walking through some tough things in your life, you're gonna go into someone's office and share some really hurtful things and, and bring it up, stir up all kinds of pain from the past. That therapist is gonna make you talk about some things you don't wanna talk about. They're gonna get into your past, stirring up a lot of pain to get to healing. The surgeon and the therapist make you feel worse before you can be better. This is also how the gospel works. It's how we get to peace. So our theme for this series is gift exchange. Now, how many of you all love to receive gifts? Raise your hand. It's, it should be most of us, right? If you're not raising your hand, no one's buying you Christmas gifts this year. So, But we love to get gifts, right? Most of the time. But it really does depend on what kind of gift it is, doesn't it? Because there are some gifts that wouldn't be so great to receive. So just imagine this for a minute. Ladies, what if your husband bought this book as a Christmas gift for you? I mean, this of course would cause him to sleep on the couch. But for you to receive this gift, 
it would cause you to have to do what? To swallow your pride, right? To receive this gift would, would cause you to have to swallow your pride. But here's the good news is, is even though you, he bought you this gift, it's that you bought him this gift. <laughs> Some of you guys are writing this down. You're like, that's a great idea. I'm going to write that down. If you can't see the author, it's Guillermo Maldonado. Okay, that's the name of the author on that book. Amazon that. So, but of course, if, if he were to receive this gift, this gift would require, of course, swallowing your pride to receive a gift like this. And so some gifts can be hard to receive because they make us swallow our pride and admit our flaws just to receive the gift. And there has never been a gift offered that makes us swallow our pride like the gospel. If we want peace, we have to go through the inner conflict of surrender and repentance to get to peace. But here's the really good news. Once we've done that, we get to live on mission as peacemakers. Once we've come into this relationship with Jesus, we get to live on mission in our world as peacemakers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Whenever we hear the word peacemaker, we think of someone who never rocks the boat, never causes controversy. But was that, was that who Jesus was? No. See, a peacemaker is different than a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is okay with the status quo. A peacekeeper avoids conflict at all costs. They'll sweep truth under the rug. They sacrifice truth for, they'll sacrifice right and wrong just to keep the peace. But a peacemaker is someone who may have to cause a little bit of conflict to bring about peace. So you might say it like this, avoiding, avoiding truth leads to peacekeeping, embracing truth leads to peacemaking. And I want to be a peacemaker. I hope you want to be a peacemaker in the world that you and I live in. Because our peacemaking is going to take on the same shape as God's peacemaking. When you think about our relationships with each other, it's going to take on the same shape as God's relationship with us. We have to often go through the conflict to get to peace. Jesus enters into the chaos and he enters into the conflict to bring about peace and we have to do the same thing in our relationships. We get to be peacemakers in families, at work, among different races and social classes, between neighbors. We get to introduce people to the ultimate peacemaker. We said earlier that peace isn't just an absence but peace is a presence. And I wanna show you how that's true. Look at Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. Paul writes, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Could I have our worship team come back up on the stage as we continue talking here about Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. But for believers, 
the offer of peace isn't just an idea, but it can become a reality in the heart. So I know as we think about this idea of peace, many of us deal daily with anxiety and fear and worry, and there's just no end in sight. Some of you feel that right now. You, 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 you feel like there's just no end in sight to your circumstance and situation. Do you know what the word anxiety means? It literally means to be pulled apart. And that's what some of you feel right now. You've got hopes pulling you in one direction, and you've got life's trials pulling you in the other. And you feel this great tension between the two, and it feels like you're being pulled apart. And some of you are exhausted, and you feel sapped physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Corey Ten Boom once said, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it empties today of its strength. And some of you in the room, you're feeling that in a real present way right now. So Paul says there's some things we can do in the chaos of fear and worry and anxiety. And he says here in this passage that we can come to him in prayer with thanksgiving. That means that we are thanking him for the outcome even before we receive it. But watch what happens. It says, God's peace, which surpasses all understanding, which doesn't even make sense, considering the circumstances, that peace is gonna guard your heart and your mind. That peace is going to stand over you like a guard and guard your heart and your mind. As Paul writes these words in Philippians, remember he's writing this from a place where he is being watched 24-7 by a Roman guard. He may have borrowed this analogy, you know, God's peace is going to guard you just like this guy's guarding me. And so peace isn't just an absence. Peace is a presence. And peace only comes with the presence of God in our lives. So I want to just have us worship and celebrate that 